We're just waiting a few minutes for people to join us. Okay, let's get started. As I was saying, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this event on the challenges of inclusive and impartial humanitarian action in Northeast Nigeria. My name is Veronique Farbelet. I'm an independent consultant and a research associate with the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI, and I will be your chair today. For those of you who may not know us, the Humanitarian Policy Group, or HPG, as you will be hearing us referring to it, is the humanitarian research team at ODI. And ODI is a leading global affairs think tank based in London. Today's event will discuss the barriers to more inclusive and impartial humanitarian action in Northeast Nigeria. It will also highlight some of the practices that have contributed to more inclusive outcomes, as well as the opportunities to support more inclusive, effective and impartial humanitarian responses in large-scale, complex, protracted internal displacement crises. Today's event also launches a new report entitled Inclusion and Exclusion in the Northeast Nigeria Crisis. It outlines the findings of research conducted by NIM Foundation, the American University of Nigeria, a Nigerian human rights organizations, and HPG at ODI. We have the pleasure to have a to have fantastic contributors to our panel today. Dr. Sarah Njeri, Research Fellow at the Humanitarian Policy Group with ODI. Dr. Grace Onubedo, Lead Researcher, Policy Education and Research at NIM Foundation. Charles Uziye, Country Director, Plan International Nigeria. Kingsley Okpabi, Program Manager, GRG Foundation. Ellie Camp, who is the Head of Research, Evidence and Advocacy at Clear Global Translator Without Borders and Ahmed Ali Saleh, Capacity Building Officer with Clear Global Translator Without Borders in Nigeria. Before we start, please note that this event is recorded. Please do use the chat to let us know where you are joining us from and your organization so that we know who is with us today. And then following our panel speakers, um, we will open the floor for your questions. And you can use the question and answer box, the Q&A box, which is at the bottom of your screen, to send us your questions. Great. I would like to hand over now the floor to Dr. Sarah Jerry, who is a research fellow at the United Policy Group at ODI. Sarah is one of the co-authors um, of the report, and she will present its main findings and recommendations. Over to you, Sarah. I will share my screen. Thank you everyone and welcome. Uh, I'm delighted to be part of, uh, uh, part of this panel uh, and especially to be a co-panelist with uh, you know, a, a broad range of, 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 of people respected in, in the panel, in, in, in this field. Uh, my interventions will be, uh, we're very aware of the time and because we want uh, uh, a good discussion, I'll just highlight the key findings for, for this research. As Vero has mentioned, we, we, this uh, project was, uh, this research was carried out in partnership in collaboration with the NIM Foundation who are co-panelists, the American University and a, a rights-based organization, all based in the Northeast of Nigeria, without whom we would not have, you know, had this um, uh, outcome. And the overall, sorry, Vero, the, sli the, the slides are just, yeah. Back to the past one, yeah. 
So our, our, our research interrogated what the drivers of, uh, of, of exclusion were for people affected by conflict, including the humanitarian action. We examined uh, how far the humanitarian response was inclusive. And from that, we extrapolated the factors that undermined and supported a more inclusive humanitarian response. Uh, next slide, please, Fleuron. Our uh, overall finding was that uh, the response, the, the response's lack of adequate engagement with diverse uh, communities and, and consideration for and consideration for of, of longer term and structural processes of exclusion, and, and specifically the exclusion or effects of conflict means that the humanitarian response exacerbated and contributed to exclusion of an already uh, marginalized population. We are cognizant and, and, and very much acknowledge the very, very difficult uh, humanitarian, uh, very difficult uh, and immense operational challenges that humanitarian actors faced in the region in Northeast Nigeria. And also that the, the, the challenging uh, role that the government's militarized approach to the crisis has made uh, for, the, for an effective uh, and impartial humanitarian response. And so we, uh, while we present the, the findings, we are very cognizant of these key factors. Next slide, Vero. Uh, so I've, I've grouped the, the factors, the drivers of exclusion in Northeast Nigeria in two, in, in, in two different broad categories. Broadly, the contextual factors and the factors that are, uh, are the drivers uh, that are instigated by humanitarian action. So we find that in, in, in the, Northeast, uh, the Northeast region suffers from, from long-term long socioeconomic inequalities that have existed for, for a long time. They, and within the Nigerian society, there's also long-term social exclusion that exists within the society there. So particularly in the Northeast, this interacts with the impact of conflict um, to create heightened or raised vulnerabilities for certain groups of people and individuals, which then intersect with the humanitarian response. However, what we found was that the humanitarian actors have failed to adequately take those into account. And their efforts, as we'll hear from, from our co-panelists, uh, uh, of efforts that have made uh, consideration for uh, that have uh, are made to consider exclusion. These are linked to gender norms language. However, we found that the response had failed to fully understand and mitigate the wider exclusion, um, the wider dynamics uh, for exclusion. Uh, in in terms of conflict and displacement, we we this has very specific. Uh, creates very specific drivers of exclusion, especially we, we pinpoint men and boys of high of fighting age because they face greater risks of recruitment from non-state actors, but they, and, and they are very underrepresented in internally displaced uh, camps and, and in humanitarian data. The absence often uh, was too often wrongly interpreted as them not being in need of assistance, rather than uh, this being seen as a symptom of the differentiated impact of conflict. So we also see that any perceived association with uh, say non-state actors for uh, whether this was true or not was a key driver for exclusion. 
People, for example, from certain ethno-linguistic groups or nearly arrived displaced from certain locations uh, would be, you know, were at a very high risk of exclusion. Um, yet what we found is that the humanitarian actors failed to adequately consider these dynamics, meaning that these groups of individuals are further marginalized in, in the response. Another key finding for us uh, that was um, kind of surprising, but not quite very much, was that the community leaders did play, although the community leaders do play a very significant role in the response, they could be, or they can be, or also drivers of exclusion they, through their support of uh, exclusionary community dynamics, which impacts on not only on the ability of individuals to access livelihood opportunities or participating in community life, but it has negative implications when trying to access humanitarian um, assistance. And people affected by community, uh, by the conflict, systematically uh, reported to us that the, the role uh, the community leaders played as gatekeepers of humanitarian as assistance and participation in a response. And they argued that the main factor affecting inclusion for them was how close or you know how the distance you had between yourself and the community leader. However, what was interesting was that this was rarely highlighted by aid actors. Instead, they felt that, or there was a common feeling that the community engagement through gatekeepers was effective and inclusive. And it was also seen as, you know, it's the, the, there was enough of community engagement from, from such actors. Therefore, we find that a longer term and specific conflict uh, drivers of exclusion further just compound rather than mitigate the humanitarian response, which is not systematically inclusive. Next slide, uh, Vero. So uh, beyond that, we find that the role, the, the humanitarian actors uh, and, their, and their role is quite important, that a majority of the, of the humanitarian actors had a very weak understanding of what inclusion meant and how it related to an effective impartial and relevant response. And this is because the nature and scale of the crisis meant that macro level operational challenges took up both financial and humanitarian capital. And this led to the deprioritization, for example, of inclusion. So issues of inclusion and exclusion were mainly framed within that macro level operational challenge. And we found that, for example, humanitarian actors reported that the main issue of exclusion in the response was their lack of access, for example, to uh, had to, me, uh, had to um, reach communities uh, uh, or, or communities living, uh, that were not living under government control, as opposed to a reflection of inclusion in areas where access was feasible. In terms of, uh, also we had a lot of blanket statements that the response was impartial and therefore did not lead to exclusion, which clashed with feedback that we were getting from people affected by, by conflict, uh, who highlighted their exclusion, for example, in participation in needs assessments or in effective uh, feedback and complaint mechanisms. So, and, and how this then uh, uh, challenged the, you know, brought about inequitable access to services and assistance. So we find that impartiality was always assumed 
uh, exclusion was not um, proactively verified. And, and that uh, and, and, and some of the intersecting factors that led to exclusion uh, were not considered. The other factor is that uh, the, there are current tools and processes to assess needs uh, that were deemed to be effective. Uh, where especially where identity, though identifying needs, identification of needs was concentrated. However, there was the lack of secondary level analysis and assessment analysis on how the other drivers of exclusion are intersected and therefore, which meant that the humanitarian actors were aware of such drivers and did not uh, integrate, were unaware, sorry, of, of such drivers and did not integrate, integrate them to inform their understanding of vulnerability and needs. Uh, in terms of leadership, uh, we, we find that the, the, the Northeast, uh, the, the crisis uh, lacked an effective leadership uh, uh, and, and, that, and clarity on who had the responsibility for inclusion and, 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 and therefore, and uh, who, sorry, I'll, I'll come up again, effective leadership and clarity on who had responsibility for inclusion, which meant that there was no mandate or strategic uh, direction. And as a result, we find that inclusion therefore was an add-on um, and, and was also always seen as a, as a project under, for example, the responsibility of protection and accountability uh, specialist uh, organizations, rather than being an overriding concern affecting the relevance and, and, and the overall response. Next slide, please. There are, it's not all doom and gloom, but there, we found that there are uh, enablers of inclusion. And we highlight uh, very briefly the presence of, of uh, specialist organizations like Clear Global, where, you know, uh, always highlighted as a, a positively, a focused availability of focused and dedicated funding for protection. Mainstreaming was also highlighted as, uh, uh, in, 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 as facilitating exclusion, uh, inclusion. Also, we found that global commitments, uh, such as the guidelines, ISC guidelines on disability, increased attention to uh, disability inclusion. Uh, next slide, please. So in, in terms of uh, coming to uh, a, a conclusion now, uh, because I'm, I'm conscious of my time, is that we have recommendations. We've highlighted two key recommendations specifically for Nigeria. Uh, and one is the need for HCs and HCTs to tackle the issue of community dynamics and leaders' corruption in the response as a matter of priority uh, to reduce the drivers of, of, of exclusion. And this can be done through maybe stakeholder mapping of community structures or post-distribution uh, uh, monitoring. Uh, and other, other, other ways in which you can, that can be done. Also that the food security sector and partners must revise the, the, the food uh, distribution practices so that they can follow existing guidelines and good practices. Uh, and this would, you know, to, this would ensure the safe and dignified food distribution and support for those uh, vulnerable communities that, uh, that are trying to, to access and at risk of physical exclusion in crowds. Um, in, and finally, the, we have broader, more broader recommendations for inclusion, especially for tracking and, and supporting more inclusive humanitarian uh, action. 
And one of these is to ask who we are not seeing and, and check assumptions against data. And I think we'll see an example of that uh, from one of our panelists. Also, we need to reprioritize inclusion and impartiality as an operational and strategic focus, including through maybe a, a, a establishing a clear policy framework. Also, there is need for investment uh, in more disaggregated data and analysis. I think we kept hearing that over and over again in uh, the Northeast Nigeria case study. And then uh, finally, the link to policy and, and operational efforts on inclusion, participation, and localization. So I know I've zoomed through uh, uh, that presentation. I'm happy for uh, the discussion that follows and to answer more in-depth questions. Over to you, Vero. Great, thank you so much, Sarah, for this. Um, I'd like to now hand over to um, Grace, Dr. Grace Onubedo. Um, he's lead researcher, policy education and research at NIM Foundation. And Grace is also one of the co-authors of the report. Grace, you led the team of you led the team of researchers uh, from NIM Foundation who collected a lot of the data for this report. Um, NIM Foundation is also an operational organization responding to the crisis in Northeast Nigeria. Um, what are the findings from this research that surprised you the most? What did you find was the most critical and important evidence coming from this research? Over to you, Grace. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Vera, for this opportunity. And it was such a delight to collaborate with um, HBG on this um, project. Um, so I just have five minutes. I'm going to really go straight to the point. Um, so for us, I think one of the key findings that struck us uh, from the study was the fact that um, a major finding from this was that men and young boys of fighting age are marginalized. Yes, prior to going for data collection, there are a lot of um, theoretical um, methodologies or theoretical evidence where we tend to try to group the kind of people that we would think are marginalized or excluded. And most of the time, we tend to think it's going to be women um, or maybe children, majorly girls. Um, but going into this research and discovering that we really don't have a lot of records of women, except older women, who recorded that they were being excluded, majorly when it came to food distribution, and also the challenge that comes with food distribution in the sense that um, there's always a lot of commotion, there's always um, a lot of people scrambling for the resources available. So it was more in the terms of the fact that they were quite elderly and that they didn't have the energy to go through that process. That was where we had the situation of women recording an exclusion, but we discovered that a lot of men and young boys responded to being excluded. For us, it brought up a lot of questions. So it brought up questions as to, are they being excluded because there's a lower percentage of representation from them in the community? Are they being excluded because they are linked to um, the armed groups? Or are they being excluded in the terms of because we are trying to bridge the gap 
between the male and female gen gender, which we feel is already in existence, we seem to be alienating the men now in the sense where trying to solve a problem, we are creating another problem. So this, this was a deep reflection for us, um, not just in our programming as an organization, but also in our programming as humanitarian actors to really um, sit down to review uh, most of our programming and processes um, so that we see that in trying to solve one problem, we are not um, trying to um, cause another problem where men and young boys who are more exposed to being targets of these armed groups due to the fact that they are excluded from these humanitarian activities are tempted or are forced to either rejoin the group if they were formally associated or those who were not formally associated are willing to join the group knowing that we know that economic situations are one of the driving factors that the armed groups use in the recruitment of um, young men and boys into their, their group. So that was one point. For us again, another thing that struck us from the findings that we had was the interface of the community leaders. Um, so yes, if we want to come to the defense of the humanitarian actors, we are all for community-based supports. So in the sense that we want to provide support that is community-centered. When trying to provide support that are community-centered, uh, we implementing our programs in the right way. So it tells us that we need to put channels or we need to have processes that ensure that because we want to be community-centered and as the community leaders and gatekeepers at the entrance into the community, we are not in the sense giving them um, so much power where um, the goodwill of our projects is now um, not fulfilled. So there needs to be um, processes and procedures that check. So what's the process? Once we go into the communities, we are able to establish our presence and establish the community support and community engagement. Further after that, what are the processes we are putting in place so that the sole decision of who or who is not in, um, included in our programs and not just the sole responsibility of this community leaders or gatekeepers. So we are looking for processes that ensure that our programs are inclusive and also community orientated. That is the um, kind of synergy that we need to um, look at. Um, thirdly, Another point that we looked at was that um, humanitarian responses in the Northeast are not well tailored and they lack adequate engagement. So we, we have these um, programs we want to tend to implement and we found out a lot of respondents reporting that they were not engaged or they have never been engaged in the process of needs identification or needs assessment, or even given the opportunity to give feedback. So what's, what's our methodology for program implementation? Um, is it more of like a tick box approach? Um, are we more focused on the quantity and not the quality 
of work that is done. Um, how are we providing tailored specific um, humanitarian responses um, based on the needs of the communities we tend to go um, into? Um, I think it calls for us to move our focus from um, just trying to say we provided this response or we provided the services and these were the number of people who were part of the services to so trying to know um, did this response have an impact? Did this response meet the need as at the time it was um, provided? Because even in the course of our data collection, um, you go into communities to collect data. And we had situations in some days where we could not date, collect data because you had like five or six um, humanitarian actors coming to distribute food um, the same day. So you have the situation where most of the support provided are based on food. And then there are other um, aspects of needs that are lacking health, education, um, sanitation, which are lacking in those communities. So it's, it's um, something that calls for reflection. And lastly, um, so I don't overshoot my time. The last point I want to point out is the lack of a clear path for critical assessment and monitoring. And this for us from reading the report was that there was a lot of divergence between the um, reports from the members of the community and humanitarian aid actors. So we assume that we are doing a good job. We think that we are providing them the services, but they think otherwise. So there's no feedback mechanism. We um, just drive with our numbers, we drive with our key performance indicators, and we just run with it. We really don't go back to speak to them to know how these services or this um, provision we made to them, whether it was useful or whether it was needed or whether it had any impacts on them at that moment. So it just calls for a really clear path for assessment and monitoring as we go further in our programming as humanitarian actors. Um, so I'll stop here at this point. Great, thank you so much, Grace. And um, I think it's interesting you brought up the issue of uh, being driven by numbers. I think this is something we in the research team have been thinking a lot about what does success mean and, and part of the reason why inclusion doesn't really get picked up is because inclusion requires a lot more looking at impact rather than reach and coverage. Um, so thank you so much for these reflections. We have the pleasure to have um, Charles Ozier on the panel, who is the country director for Plan International Nigeria. Um, Charles, so um, again, like how do the findings of this report resonate with your experience of the response? What are some of the challenges, but also the opportunity to take some of the report's recommendations forward to make the response more inclusive, more effective, and more impartial? Um, yeah, over to you for your reflections um, on this report. Um, thank you very much, um, Veronique, um, and good afternoon once again, uh, colleagues. Um, I am uh, delighted to be providing my insights into this report and what we've listened to so far. Um, as someone who has been in the response for as long as lasted, uh, my first uh, entry into the response uh, was in 2014. Um, and of course, uh, the entire response went to scale sometime in 2015. And I've been there since then. 
Um, I, um, on the basis of that, I would say that um, we've come a long way in terms of uh, um, the response, in terms of the ability for the humanitarian sector to respond to the displacement and suffering um, of people, in the, uh, particularly in the Northeast. Uh, but uh, on the general terms, uh, we're looking through this report and the findings, um, yeah, I, I'm struggling to place it exactly in terms of my experience on the ground. And I, I would say that um, the, the, the research in general terms, it's um, uh, probably a reflection of, um, of, of um, maybe a component, you know, um, of um, the experience on ground, um, to be fair to humanitarian actors who've been on ground over, over this time. And um, I say this with every sense of responsibility uh, because um, whilst I agree that we are still dealing with, um, you know, what you will call, you know, significant levels of um, exclusion, um, I would say that um, the context actually uh, has been uh, quite um, difficult, you know, to, to make much uh, uh, progress as, we, as you've seen. Now, the, the report actually admits that uh, there's been long-term social exclusion in Nigeria, you know, across board, you know, uh, go to every part of Nigeria and you will see heightened levels of exclusion slapping in your face. Um, and, th and this is across, you know, everywhere in Nigeria. If you, um, for, for some of our colleagues and friends who have visited us to Nigeria, when you land at the airport and you begin to drive into Nigeria from the airport in Abuja and you drive into town, it gives you a picture of, uh, of a city that see, or a country that seems to have its, um, uh, you know, it's it, 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 uh, it's it's pathway to 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 progress and to um, uh, prosperity, but that's that's not true. Um, even from the airport there, a forty minutes drive to the back of the airport would shock you in terms of the living conditions of people. You know, this is forty minutes to the city center. Drive right into Abuja City is the same experience, just across the fringes of Abuja City, which is a mega city, big, beautiful, you know, prosperous in terms of what you see. Just by the sides and in pockets, you find huge levels of exclusion. This is the basis we're talking about. Now, this is Abuja. But we're talking about the region that is considered to be one of the poorest regions in the world. And that has been a historic issue. This is now coupled with a long-term, probably 12 years of conflict. Clearly, uh, we're dealing with another level, you know, of systemic um, exclusion, you know, if we look at it uh, from that perspective. And so expecting humanitarian actors to be able to turn this tide around in a six, seven year consistent response is, um, a bit um, too ambitious. But what have we done? Um, I, I agree that, you know, uh, we still face these levels of uh, uh, exclusion. One of the first forms of it, which this report mentioned, which I totally agree with, is the heightened levels of exclusion, particularly for men and for boys. Some years ago, some five years ago, to be honest, there were men and boys who will not even attempt 
to come to distribution sites for food because they were almost indirectly targeted by the military. Once you find an able-bodied young man, they are the first targets you know, of the military because then they are picked up, they are interrogated. Many of them don't come back. Uh, many of them without any uh, you know, uh, strong ability to, to prove what you're doing, then you, know, you end up uh, with the military. And so I agree with all of that. But what are some of um, the challenges to this? It's access. Access still remains a problem. And not just access to populations caught between, caught be, be behind the, um, you know, the wall lines. I'm talking of access even within the populations, within um, uh, both camps and host communities. There are cultural and religious practices that will not allow people engage in a way that would be able, you know, to break down uh, historic levels of exclusion. Um, I would not go into that, but I'm sure during the question and answer sessions, we'll be able to explore that um, a bit. I agree that data collection is still an issue, still a big problem. And that's why translation without uh, translation uh, with border, above, uh, across borders and all of that TV, uh, w, yeah, um, they're doing a brilliant work, you know, because language was a big issue for data collection and then technology was an issue as well. Um, and you will notice that most organizations who use who collect data use more advanced technology these days. So that was a problem. And then finally, there are conditions that have been put by the state and federal governments. I didn't see that come out clearly in this report that would limit our ability to break down these cycles of exclusion. You know, and that's something we should confront. Uh, there's only so much humanitarian actors could do because we have gotten the brunt of trying to confront those systems. We have gotten our, the back of our hands slapped. So what can we do in a few minutes uh, or, in a, or in a minute? What, what can we do going forward? Uh, my, what I think we can do to, to actually make this response more inclusive is to continue to disaggregate our data. That is already happening. I give you evidence, I give you fact. It is already happening. We can make it even more, uh, uh, we can make it better, we can make it uh, stronger. But whilst we do that, we should respect data, uh, data protection guidelines. That is a big issue that is currently on the table. There is a big tussle between you know, the government, you know, agencies, humanitarian actors in terms of how data should be managed. That is a big issue. So it's not just about harvesting the data, it's how they are managed. That again will increase the level of exclusion that we're actually trying to correct, you know, by disaggregating data. Um, um, I, for, for when it comes to food distribution, there are food distribution committees. I didn't hear you say a lot about it in this report, but there are committees that have been set up, which was there's a guideline for how these committees should be established. They are existing. We should strengthen them. But saying they don't exist and we don't collect feedback is not a true reflection. They exist. We can support them, we can build more capacity, and we can expand them, but they exist. This is effort of humanitarian actors. And then finally, we should continue to adhere to sector guidelines. Again, this is another effort we've made across all the sectors. If you go to the sector working groups, there is an emphasis on guidelines in terms of intervention. A common thing as toilets, go to the communities, go to the um, um, uh, camps, and see the way most toilets were constructed now and with the way they were constructed before, you will recognize the huge difference. And this is as a result of consistent, you know, um, um, reinforcement of respecting the guidelines, you know, in terms of how we implement projects to ensure that people are not excluded, 
you know. So I'll stop there, but um, because there's a lot to say, uh, but maybe during the question and answer session, we will be able to explore some of this in detail. But um, I, I must, I, I, I must give uh, you know kudos to, to humanitarian actors over the years who have worked in very difficult situations to be able to ensure that no one is left behind. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charles, and thank you for your reflections um, and reminding us of, of the difficult situations. I think one of the things on the committee maybe for the panel to reflect on, uh, and maybe we can pick this up in the Q&A, and one of the reflections we're having in our team, and, and we talked a lot with Grace and the team at the Foundation about this as well, um, that these committees that exist, whether that's a wash committee or a food committee, indeed usually try and bring in different um, actors, older people, people with disabilities, younger people, women, um, and actually what, what we're questioning, and if, if I could do a follow-up study um, from this report, it would be an evaluation of whether these committees are actually leading to these voices being inclusive. And I think we would argue um, in our research and, and more work is upcoming from this project that actually it may be better to not have mixed committees, but to have multiple committees. So instead of having a woman within a committee where that woman may not feel she can exercise her power or her voice to make sure that they are, we as humanitarians interact more with women-led organizations and women-led um, community-based organizations to have their voice heard through that. And similarly, um, with people living with disabilities, they talked a lot to us about how they felt they were not necessarily able to voice their needs and their feedback properly in those mixed committees. And what they would prefer is to be engaged on their own terms as a community. Um, so something maybe to reflect on, and I'd be happy to hear more during the Q&A. Um, so thank you, Charles. I would like now to turn to Kingsley Okpabi, who is Program Manager um, at the Jeredu Foundation. Kingsley, um, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, you're the National Program Manager um, at the Jeredu Foundation. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the challenges that you have found in terms of identifying and supporting people living with disabilities in displacement camps in Northeast Nigeria, and how you and your team have addressed these challenges. Over to you, thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, good afternoon from Nigeria. I, I hope you can hear me. Uh, my name is Kingsley Okwadi, and um, I work for Jerry Doe Foundation. Um, quite a lot has been said so far, and quite um, insightful from the report, and also from um, the conversation, uh, Mr. Charles just um, rounded up, um, quite insightful and, and true to say um, that um, these are some of the issues um, on ground as, as we speak. Um, so working in Northeast Nigeria for us, um, in terms of inclusion, I think that for us as an organization, it's something that we have been very um, proactive and deliberate about rather than being um, reactive. Um, we see ourselves as the voice for the voiceless. And so um, internally as an organization, we um, actually from time to time find ways of ensuring that um, our projects or um, our programs are inclusive. Um, in terms of, um, I'll be talking more around my experience or our experience and how we um, are able to overcome some of the challenges that we have identified um, over time. Um, one of the challenges that we have um, seen over time is, is, is that affects or, or, or kinds of brings um, the level of inclusion uh, down is the level of engagement we have as humanitarian organization at the community level. Um, for us as an organization, we go beyond just engaging at stakeholder levels to um, 
having more deliberate um, engagements with the people in need. Um, that way we have seen that it, it has been more beneficiary and more helpful. Um, internally, I would say that we have uh, a national organization who wants to live up to and uh, up to um, what we stand for. So somehow that drives our conversations all the time. One of the things that we believe in is that it is, um, we believe that it's more profitable having conversations, more um, engagement, deeper engagements at the community level, at uh, the camp level, for example, than just um, maybe engaging with um, the, 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 the regular stakeholders or the, the gatekeepers alone. That way you would find out, you would get more information. You would um, find out better ways of designing your program. You would get real-time information. And, and one of the examples I would like to share, I think in, in the year 2020, um, we had our national coordinator was around in Northeast Nigeria to visit um, community in Dikwa. And from the, the deeper engagements or the level of engagement she had at that time, um, when she came on ground, made us find out that there was a female, for example, she came back and one of the feedback was, um, as a program manager, she was having a conversation with me and she was saying, are you aware there is a female Bulama that's like a community leader in Dikwa? And we said we're aware, but we're still struggling to meet up with her. But in, in a day, she had already met up with her. So this gives you an example of, of ways we could actually um, like improve or, or ensure that we have inclusion the grassroots engagement. Um, if we keep our engagements at the gatekeeper level, at the community um, stakeholders level, you will find out that there will be a particular group or, or class of people within um, the camps or the communities that may never be reached with any response. And from then on, we, it has always been a mandate to say, go, you, you may not get to know everything sitting in the office. You need to go out there, engage, talk with people one-on-one, -on -one, um, interact with them, and you get information, you get to know um, what exactly is on board. And, and talking about, for example, talking about meeting people with disability, um, it is a product of these types of engagements that we've had. And like Charles rightly said, um, there is that level, or in terms of the way we program, it is fair enough to say that there are efforts being, um, being put that are in place that guide us and helps us to ensure that um, there is inclusion. For example, the sector guidelines, for example, uh, is there, aside for us, aside internal guidelines that we have um, in place to ensure that um, our programs are participatory and all groups within um, the camps and the community um, level are carried along in our implementation. Whether they are directly participants or beneficiaries or will be affected by our program, we find out ways deliberately to ensure that um, we work with them in our implementation. Um, the other challenge around um, inclusion that I have seen over time is, especially around children, when the um, issue around inclusion of children was mentioned, I could easily relate with that. Um, we found it challenging or difficult, um, um, including children in some programs, especially because they do not have, because of cultural norms, um, a child is not expected to speak um, when we are having some engagements, um, engagements of this nature, for example, but so they do not have the space of their own. Somehow, in terms of protection programming, it enables you to have to, to push and to ensure that children have uh, a space for themselves when you engage them. But in terms of getting feedbacks from them, in terms of engaging them and trying to find out what they think and what how the program affects them, um, over time we've learned that 
children need to have beyond protection programs, need to have a space where you engage them separately. So somehow we have been, uh, as we have focus group discussions and um, uh, feedback meetings, we have also come up with, uh, with, with, with that system in place. And it's also something that is also common across other partners too, where we also have these feedback meetings and engagement with children to try to engage them and, and, and to see um, what their opinion or what their perspective is about about the program, what they think. And it will amaze you sometimes uh, of the feedback you receive. Sometimes even children, it, it will amaze you. Sometimes children think that, well, the food distribution could be done in this way, in this way, it will be better um, than the regular way. Or it, if it's done in this time, um, we're able to be there to pick food for our parents who are not able to do that. If, we, if a distribution is set during our school time, for example, then we are not able to provide support for our parents as little as that is. So um, this is one other challenge um, that we have seen. Um, and then also level of, uh, in terms of representation um, of some groups within the community, that also is uh, also a challenge that we have seen um, in terms of level of participation of some groups within the community. For example, people living with disabilities, like um, I mentioned in, while we're having the engage, um, discussions before now, um, of course, it is a, somehow we just, we know that it's slightly going to be difficult engaging them, especially when it comes to, um, when it comes to um, getting their voices heard and, and um, um, getting their inputs into what we do. However, as humanitarians, we're able to program for them. But so, um, in terms of, like Charles said, we focus a lot and we work with sector guidelines. So when you're constructing a latrine, for example, you are, you are looking out to ensure that there is a ram in place to, uh, uh, to ensure that a disabled person or, or people living with disability are able to access that latrine, for example, or when you're constructing your safe spaces or your facilities in the community, we put, have a lot of considerations for them. However, in terms of engaging them at the, at the community level and also getting their feedbacks and inputs into program, I would say that that has been a bit of, uh, maybe a bit of gap in that area. But it has been, if you are able to improve your level of engagement, you're able to break out and identify them wherever um, within the community where they are. Um, usually you may not find them moving around the community or going, um, moving around. Again, because of cultural norms and, and, and practices where they think that a family may think that they do not want to be, do not want to be um, tagged or labeled as a family that has a disabled person, for example, or a person living with disability, for example. But when you improve your level of engagement and you take it down to the grassroots and the household levels, you are able to find um, them, engage with them, get their opinions. Um, we had points when we were able to, rather than, expect them to come to a distribution site, take their food or their items to them at home, for example, because we engaged with them and because we knew what they really wanted. And we're able to also form groups of, um, groups of people living with disabilities so that as we engage the stakeholders, the women leaders, the youth leaders, the children, we're also engaging with them, for example, to know what they think and, and how it impacts on them directly or indirectly. So um, these are some of the, the challenges that um, we have faced and um, because we are a bit deliberate about it uh, beyond the conversations we're having, we looked at this as also a way of improving uh, and ensuring that we have inclusion um, in our programming. But overall, I, I, I tend to also to say that it's not, um, 
I, I would say that the report really needs to maybe capture, like Charles said, the, the efforts that have gone on ground so far by partners. Because I, if, you, if you interact with maybe many other local partners who, have, who are frontliners in, 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 in the response, you might also find out quite a number of ways that um, partners, local partners especially, have, have ensured that their inclusions in their programming and, and, and how they work closely with um, at that level, at the community or camp level. It's, 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 um, it's something that we need to engage even more deeper because I, I speak not just for myself as a local partner, as, as, as JDF, Jairo Foundation, but also as a representative of, of some local partners in, in Nigeria. I speak as um, a representative of a local advisory group of, of partners in a consortium. And I, I can tell you that um, if we engage um, local partners, we're able to also find get more details. I think that um, report needs to be um, strengthened. Uh, maybe the limitation of the, the, the research would be that uh, the numbers of partners engaged or, or at what level or um, what was focused on basically. But um, from my end and as an organization, these are some of the few things that we have done so far. Great, thank you so much, Kingsley. And I think you're pointing out um, two things that are really important. One is how when you have this proactive engagement, um, and you really look out for the voices of the voiceless um, the work that you can do and how you can create a platform and make sure that you echo their feedback and that you tailor your programming. So I think that's that's really fantastic to hear that. And then the other thing you're mentioning is the role that local actors can play by being present at the community level. And that then allows them to do that proactive engagement and inform um, and inform the response. I think one thing that will be interesting to hear is how much you feel that in the response, the voice of local actors have been able to be heard by some of the more higher level. Um, and maybe here I'm not talking necessarily about um, INGOs, but also the UN, because um, I know INGOs and, and local and national NGOs often have quite close cooperation, even though there are dynamics that can be worked on. But I think there's also then at the level of, um, of of the UN agencies and, and the UN leadership. Um, uh, but maybe we can pick that up during the Q&A. I'd like now to turn to Ellie Kamp, who's Head of Research Evidence and Advocacy at Clear Global Translator Without Borders, and um, Ahmed Ali Saleh, who is Capacity Building Officer for Clear Global Translator Without Borders in Nigeria. Um, so the work of Clear Global Translator Without Borders in the Northeast Nigeria response was mentioned repeatedly as a good practice during our research by I think almost everybody we interviewed. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more what were the challenges the response faced in terms of effective and inclusive communication with people affected by crisis and what did you do as an organization to address these challenges and maybe what helped facilitated your engagement. So over to you Ellie and Ahmed. Thanks very much, Veronique, and I have to say I'm really enjoying this conversation and, and benefiting from the, the insights of the previous panellists. Um, I would say that we have definitely made some headway on this, and we've made headway with the support of partners who've been prepared to challenge their own assumptions about language, but these are definitely ongoing challenges. Um, the big problem is that Northeast Nigeria is extremely linguistically diverse. There are around 40 languages or more spoken by people affected by the conflict in different ways. Um, but humanitarian organizations have typically communicated with affected people mostly in a mix of spoken Hausa and written English. 
um, in more recent years, increasingly also in Kanuri, which is positive. But we know from the, the MSNA data, the multi-sector needs assessment data, that Hausa is a minority language in the three most affected states. Our research with partners over the last five years um, has tried to dig into the, the fundamental impacts that that has had on the extent to which humanitarian action can, can reach and adequately serve and importantly be accountable um, to marginalized language speakers among others. And there's an important link here between language and education um, because those who, if we use only an official language or predominantly an official language like Hausa, the people that are typically excluded are typically those who miss out on an education, um, which in who in Nigeria, Northeast Nigeria, as in many other parts of the world, are often people living with disabilities. They're often the older generation. Um, they're often women and girls. And so women and girls, older people, people with disabilities are, as a result, routinely, unintentionally excluded to a certain extent. And what that means is that people who aren't confident house speakers are less likely to have their experiences and, and their priorities and taken on board um, in, in needs assessments and in program design, because those processes aren't always set up to hear from uh, people who don't, don't speak those dominant languages. Those people are also less likely to understand things like the, the eligibility criteria for a particular program um, or, or public health information or social and behavior change information. And also really importantly, directions, for instance, on how to report abuse and what will happen if you do. Um, they are less likely to receive high quality services, particularly those communication-based services like healthcare and education and psychosocial support. And with confidential services like, like legal counselling or psychosocial support, there's an additional barrier because we, we, we hear from humanitarian organisations how they have difficulty identifying interpreters, uh, trained interpreters to support. And so they have to bring in for marginalised languages, they have to call on members of, of the person's own community. And so privacy, confidentiality can, can readily be lost in that context. Really importantly, People who are not confident house, house of speakers tell us and have told that the Prospine Consortium um, in its recent assessment of accountability practices, they've told us that they have less opportunity to lodge complaints or to suggest improvements to, you know, to food distributions or, or other practices or to make their voices heard in, in decision making. And this unintended, entirely unintended exclusion within the humanitarian response, of course, compounds the disadvantages that others have spoken about. Um, it compounds them by making them more dependent on others, particularly on others who, are, who do speak uh, more powerful languages. None of this, as I say, is intended. All of the efforts that Charles and, and, uh, and Kingsley were talking about are entirely true. There has been, in the North and East Nigeria response as elsewhere, a lack of awareness to language of language as an issue which has historically relied on, um, come from a lack of data. Um, data both as a starting point for planning uh, a response and data to track the outcomes of our interventions and different services for, for speakers of different languages in order to understand who, who may be being left behind. Um, and because of that lack of awareness, we've seen a lack of, a lack of capacity, um, a, a lack of provision or very limited you know, budgeting and planning of human resource needs for the different languages. 
um, and very often a reliance on untrained and largely unsupported national staff to carry the multilingual communication burden for the organisation. To talk a little bit more about what we've been doing to address the challenges, I'm going to pass over to my colleague Ahmed. Ahmed, over to you. Um, thank you very much, Ellie. Um, hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Just to be sure. Yeah. All right. Um, Red, thank you very much. I wish I would continue listening because I'm personally very happy that um, we are talking about the issue of exclusion at a more practical level, which is um, not the case sometimes um, before now. So having listened to Ellie um, telling us about the challenges, uh, I'll quickly take us through how GWB works. Um, here in Nigeria to address um, those challenges. So uh, TWB, um, Clear Global in Nigeria, supports humanitarian organizations to address um, those challenges in three distinct um, ways. Although there are more other interventions we do, but for the purpose of this discussion, I will focus on these um, three distinct um, ways. Um, number one, we do um, make efforts to address those um, challenges through increasing awareness and understanding, and um, uh, which we do through research and assessment, uh, mapping and analyzing language um, data. And um, having said mapping and analyzing language data, we came up with the um, uh, we come up with the TWB language map, and it will interest you to know that TWB language map forms part of the multisectoral need assessment data, where we supported Rich, um, which is a database organization. I believe um, we all know uh, who Rich are to include language questions. Um, so we'll have um, a better understanding of what languages uh, are spoken at the local government area level across Borno, Adamawa, and Yobes uh, state. So the map will um, guide humanitarian actors to understand what languages are spoken, uh, uh, starting or ranging from community A to Z and at what percent. So they will have um, uh, that information on how best to plan their programs um, in, in line with information, education, and communication needs, because we took our time to include um, explicit questions in the multisectoral need assessment, particularly about the languages people speak at the home level and um, you know the languages they prefer to receive um, written or oral information in. And again, the MSNA uh, gave us more insight in uh, uh, understanding language preferences of, uh, of the affected population um, across um, Borno, Adama, and Yobe, which is clearly telling us that um, the language issue across the three states actually um, varies. So, for example, um, uh, we found out that in Adama State, which um, forms part of the Northeast, um, where uh, you know they are more linguistically diverse than Borno and um, uh, Yobe. We found out about 40% of people speak a minority um, language, which which entails that um, multilingual communication approach is is actually uh, essential to ensure everyone can be able to receive uh, uh, information or provide complaint or feedback um, in the languages or the format of languages they prefer um, the most. So, secondly, um, we try to address those challenges 
through supporting humanitarian actors to communicate more accessibly. And how do we do that? We do that by providing translation uh, uh, support, plain language editing support, training in humanitarian interpreting and community-based interpreters skills, which is particularly targeting minority language speakers. And then we also have this um, language uh, glossaries, and we also provide support in the area of graphic or pictorial um, communication. So for the translation, we do that in the nine most affected languages in the Northeast. And I believe um, Kingsley and Sarah who work with in the Northeast must have known how we do that. And those languages include Hausa, Kanuri, Chua, Fulani, Babur, Waha, Kebaku, um, Marigi, and Mandra, Glavda. Uh, but in addition to those nine languages, we also provide support in other languages through um, our trained volunteers. If um, the need arises because we understand quite sure that maybe sometimes the need will arise to provide support in other languages apart from the original um, nine. So um, for the TWB um, language glossary, which is readily available and um, translated, uh, which help, which contains um, translated key humanitarian terms in the areas of AAP, um, explosive ordnance risk education, um, protection, MHPSS, um, COVID-19, uh, CCCM, water sanitation and hygiene, and also more broadly, general humanitarian terminologies. And um, humanitarian actors can make use of that because we understand that um, sometimes it's very difficult for them to translate or interpret those key terminologies into the local languages in order to help them or support them to avoid misinterpreting certain key statements which will be misleading at the end of the day. And then we also uh, build the capacity of um, field-based humanitarian actors in the areas of language awareness and also humanitarian interpreting and most importantly community-based interpreting training which focused on uh, which focuses on uh, minority language speakers because we know when we're talking about the issue of inclusion inclusion and inclusion we know that they are the ones that are most um, affected in terms of uh, exclusion so um the third one, uh, we do uh, try to address those challenges through advice and innovation on accessible um, accountability, complaint and feedback mechanisms, including using, you know, uh, audio recorders and multilingual tablets to expand access to less, you know, literate and non-Hausa speaking um, individuals. Um, for the audio recording, uh, we supported IOM um, in their effort to when they mounted audio recorders in different um, campsites across um, the state, where we will um, uh, collect those audio recorders and um, uh, audio recordings rather to translate or transcribe them um, in in in. Uh, whatever language they came through, because we understand that there is this need for people to come forward and complain whatever or irrespective of the language um, they speak. So with that, our work with um, IOM and over the course of two years, we transcribed and translated over 1,200 audio feedback messages in 12 different languages and in 16 um, camp sites. Um, then this results actually in um, increase in feedback for women and um, for other language speakers in those um, camps because they had that opportunity to come forward, record their complaint in the language they can be able to speak um, best. So we also supported the Shehu chatbot with um, Mexico, so people will readily have um, response to some critical questions 
they, they, they have on um, COVID-19 and possibly other uh, diseases using um, their phones. So um, uh, having, having said that, um, we, we believe uh, uh, we and, us, and as well other humanitarian actors are making a lot of uh, efforts and will continue to maintain that tempo of efforts in order to ensure that we all collectively overcome language exclusion based on um, uh, the fact that people need to communicate, provide feedback or complain whatever language um, they speak or they understand and to ensure that um, language is a pertinently a reason for people to get included but not actually excluded at the end of the day. Um, thank thank you. you so much. Thank you so much for this. And um, I just wanted to flag that um, one of your colleagues has put um, some of these resources in the chat. So please do have a look um, to add these resources. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see how with um, increased awareness, the kind of work that can be done and the support that specialized organizations can provide to mainstream organizations to make sure that all the efforts are supported in the right way. And for us, um, I think it was important to acknowledge uh, some of these things that are working well um, and that have worked well in the response, um, in, including um, the, 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 the work that um, Translator Without Borders Clear Global has been doing um, in supporting the response. Um, so I see we only have one question at the moment um, in, in the Q&A box, and I'm just going to read it so that our panelists um, can think about it. Um, so the question is, what do you think is stopping the food security sector from following the guidelines? And that was, um, I think, a question following um, Sarah's uh, presentation where we found that, unfortunately, as there are so many guidelines that exist for safe and dignified food security, um, and in spite of having um, these uh, food committees that are there, um, we heard repeatedly that um, a lot of individuals felt unable to access food security. So if you want to think about it, but before I, I come back to the panel, to the panel with, with questions, um, we have the pleasure of having uh, Mr. Vincent Lele with us. Uh, Mr. Vincent Lele was the deputy humanitarian coordinator in Nigeria until recently. Um, I just wanted to give um, uh, Mr. Lele, uh, just the opportunity to, to do, give a few words, if you can keep it short, because we're running uh, very close to the end of our time, but I just wanted to um, take this opportunity. Over to you. Uh, I'm not sure we can hear you if you're trying to speak. Uh, I think you're on mute now. Yep, go ahead. Uh, it seems, unfortunately, we're having a technical difficulty. Um, Vincent, if I can, I'm very sorry about that. If I can just um, ask you to write any comments in the chat, because unfortunately, for one reason or another, we're not able to hear you. Um, so I'd like to, sorry about that. Um, I'd like to go back to the panel um, and, and bring in a few things that I thought was really interesting. Um, uh, and maybe if you can add um, to this. So maybe if I go first back to Charles on this idea of, of the role of committees in, 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 um, in entering inclusion. Um, in, in what ways do you feel that these committees have worked well to ensure that different voices in the communities are being heard 
in program delivery and in service delivery. Um, and, and, you know, having read the report and listened, I think for me, one of the things that was interesting was some of Grace's reflections on it. Um, is there a way that we could either understand better the role of this committee or committees, or is there a way that these committees could be engaged in a different way to really ensure those voices are heard? So over to you with that question. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Um, for me, um, so when we started um, the response many years ago, I remember my first uh, distribution I led, then I was country director for Christian Aid. And I led our very first food distribution in the Northeast in Muna Garage. This was in 2016. Um, at that time, um, food distribution was organized in conjunction with WFP. Uh, food distribution was organized by um, a pre, you know, collected um, roster. Um, so then um, the practice was that um, the population was accessed and we get to know the number of families and the families we are grouped and when they come for distribution, we simply, you know, hand over food items according to family sizes, you know. There's some calculation that goes into that and all of that, but just to give you an idea. But over the, over the years, we came to the point of setting up food distribution committees. And it was made up of all the different subgroups of the community. So we have men, we have women, we have young boys, young girls, we have people living with disability, you know, who are part of, you know, the committee. Now, the, the, the structure is such that the representative of these groups, to a large extent, have an idea of what their subgroup would face when it comes to food access and you know, distribution. And then what were some of the barriers to some of them accessing the food? So when they meet, they discuss, they have this conversation with the organization providing the food um, to them. And it is on the basis of that, that the food distribution calendar and procedure is developed. So if, for instance, the women say, on a particular day, the women are busy maybe with a community activity or whatever, what it means is that the organization will have to structure the food distribution not to fall on those days that the women will not be available. That, that's the whole idea of that uh, committee. And it is set up in such a way that it should reduce any form of exclusion. So the people living with disability in those com committees would say that people living with disabilities will not be able to either come to the food distribution center. This is how they will prefer to access their food. And then special arrangements are made. I'm aware of such special arrangements that are made for people living with disability. I have visited a household where the head of the household was a person living with disability. And the distribution for such people were targeted. So these are efforts that people have, you know, humanitarian actors have, you know, have made. Uh, and the committee sort of ensures that nobody's left behind. However, are there instances where there's been some, because again, what you should understand is that even in a committee, they work under an atmosphere where power is charged in that sense. And when I mean power, I mean community power and oversight. 
the bulamas, you know, the heads of the communities are very powerful. And if you understand the power dynamics and the power distance that takes place in Northern Nigeria, this is even outside the conflict. It is such that when the bulama, a head of a district gives an order, it is very unlikely for anybody to do anything else. So it is under that kind of atmosphere in the humanitarian context, people living in camps and in host communities that these communities are still able to function over and above whatever seeming instructions or orders have come from the Bulamas. So understanding that power dynamics and thinking of how to navigate it, because one of the recommendations here from this report says, work closely with the heads of the communities and all of We've done that. I, I doubt if there's any organization that will go to work in Northeast Nigeria and not first pay cutting visits and more engagement with the heads of you know, communities and all of this, but it's not enough. So one thing people have done over the years is to engage directly with representatives of these subgroups. Mm. But are there tendencies for, this represent, for these representatives to not fully represent their constituency? Yes. For what reasons? It could be personal reasons. It could be reasons of some power over issues. It could be anything. And I think that that is what we should continue to interrogate going forward. It's yep, not a true reflection to say that the sector is not responding or not respecting the guidelines. I, I don't totally agree. We are, there are efforts, there are evidence to show that people are making efforts to respect those guidelines. Could it be improved? Are there other divergent issues that are coming up, particularly the use of power? I would say yes. Those are the things we should interrogate and think of how to navigate it. Okay, thank you so much, Charles. Um, and I'm afraid I see we have a second questions from Hannah in, in, in the chat on um, recommendations on, on uh, data disaggregation. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time together, so I'm going to have to cut this short. Um, but I wanted to thank the panel very much for these conversations. I think um, we've all um, had quite a, a good, critical, honest conversations um, about the report and about different experiences um, of the response. Um, and I see that um, there are other additional um, resources that people have posted in the chat, including a dialogue facilitation guide. Um, so please do have a look. Um, but yeah, thank you very much to our panelists today. This was a very interesting discussion. Um, and thank you for our audience uh, for being with us today. Um, so we'll just po post in the chat um, the link to the research project where you can find all the outputs from the research and we'll be um, publishing new outputs in the coming month. Um, we also are going to share um, the link where you can sign up for our newsletter if you want to hear more about such events and, and reports. Uh, please do not hesitate to reach out to us if you have any questions or you'd like to engage um, with us and continue engaging with us in this conversation. We definitely found it very useful and very interesting. Um, and we will be sharing a recording of the event in a few days by email, and that would also be available um, on the ODI website. Um, so a big thank you to the panelists and have a great afternoons, all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ambar. Thank you. Thank you, Vera, thank for you, your turn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to my fellow panelists. Thank you.